Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at icff.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. Work makes good work. One of the reasons some of the most famous artists we know are, were simply prolific and that in making a lot of work, you're going to get a few good ones every once in a while. And so I really follow that train of thought. And I also... We have to remember that it's a blessing of our times to not have our heads so far up our ass that we can't sort of look around and think, okay, there's a healthier way to do this. Hi everyone, I'm Amy Devers. I'm Jamie Derringer and this is Clever. And today we're talking to Zoe Pollock. Zoe Pollock is a contemporary artist, designer, and entrepreneur. She's primarily known for her work as a painter, But now she's also making a name for herself as a designer of rugs and other collaborations. Also, she's Canadian. Not sure if that's related, but she's totally delightful. It's a wise and insightful conversation. Jamie and I got a lot out of it. We're still processing it. We think you guys will like it too. So let's talk to Zoe. My name is Zoe Pollock, and I am a painter and designer. I live in Vancouver. And I am a painter because I love it. And that's how I make my living. Well, I'm glad that you love what you do. That's wonderful. And it comes across in your work for sure. I do want to start with a a blank canvas to use a fun (laughs) painter term. Thanks, Amy, for putting that in. (laughs) So you were born in Canada. So I want to go back to the beginning. Can you paint the picture of your childhood for us? Amy, I can't ask this question like this. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yes, you can. That's why I put, that's why I, do. Oh my God, I allocated so it corny. to you. All right. Yeah. Tell us what your family was like. How, where'd you grow up? What did you like to do as a kid? Give us the broad brush jokes. All right. Oh <laughs> I grew up in a small town outside of Vancouver and it's a suburb, but it wasn't overly populated in the sense of suburbs as we might think of them as super commercial or organized or it was very much a seaside town it's an older community that used to be it's a lot of retirees and uh, the the place is called White Rock and so I grew up my mom's in parks and recreation and my dad's in education and so grew up with lots of those values and running around playing lots of sports and we were outdoors a lot and my parents 
we camped a lot. We camped on every, any weekend when there was sunshine, we were outside. So strong connection to frugal vacations and outdoors and really was an athlete. What kind of an athlete? I was a fast pitcher, fast pitch. Whoa. Yeah. And still can whip it quite quickly. Oh, that's awesome. Not that that skill is ever really needed anymore, but I can. I wonder if there's a way to combine that with painting. (laughs) (laughs) We don't need to. We're good. Well, that I mean, that sounds great. It sounds like you had a lot of fun times, you know, running around, getting your energy out. What about creatively? Well, we, uh, I had two brothers too, I, I forgot to mention, but, and so that was an enjoyable part of my childhood. And when I was 14 years old, I broke my tibula, my fibula, I was about 13 maybe. And I broke my right leg in half. And so I was on crutches for a while. And as a result, I got fairly depressed. I got very depressed. And I said to my dad, do you think I could... My uncle at the time lived in Chile and was married to a Chilean woman. And so I asked if I could go down and visit them and spend some time living in Chile. And he said, if I raised enough money babysitting that I could, if I bought my plane ticket. And so I did. And so I think that was my first entrepreneurial act in a sense. And it was really a great adventure. Fast forward to coming back from Chile, I ended up going to a fine arts high school. So creatively, For grades 10, 11, and 12, I was able to study painting most of the day. So it was really a formative experience. I want to unpack this a little bit because, first of all, I'm sorry that you went through that chapter of depression, but it also sounds like it was a catalyst for your creativity, which is kind of a way to find beauty in tragedy. But even the entrepreneurial part, how, how did you fundraise and why were you so compelled to go to Chile? Well, I was really frustrated with growing up in the suburbs had a lot of advantages, but I was very, very cognizant that this was not reality, that not everybody was white and privileged and got driven around in cars and stuff. I had this strong sense. I was a little bit angry, I think, as a teenager around that age. Part of what I was starting to experience was feeling like the world was bigger and feeling frustrated with how small my world was. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel like I really wanted to push that. And it just felt like a good opportunity to to get to go down there and, and explore something new. And I don't know, the idea just popped in my head. And then once it was there, it was not going away. I can totally empathize with your understanding that the world is bigger and you're just not having access to it. What was yeah. that trip to Chile like for you and what did you see and how did it shape you well I was in Santiago and I didn't speak a word of Spanish when I went down there and none of the students so I was an all-girls private Catholic school and it was really fun I mean the girls were we were at such a nice age where the girls were still young enough to be nice to me and I was foreign enough and I was kind of interesting and new and different so they really took good care of me and I was five foot 10 at that age. So that's hence why I was an athlete, but also I was an anomaly there. And so the second I walked in the door, the basketball coach knocked on the door and was like, you three o'clock like on the court. <laughs> so I was definitely um, recruited right away for the basketball team, which was, is another love that I've revisited. We can talk about later, but have now revisited 20 years later. So refinding that hobby has just been such a pleasure. And, um, it was a really important part of being down there was playing this sport that I hadn't really played before. And it was after my injury. And so my depression was really dark and, and I lost the thing, you know, I didn't play softball after that. So I kind of lost this thing that I used to do, you know, 20 hours a week, or whatever. So it really was fun to play a new sport and get back into it and feel like I was kind of back on my feet again. So when you returned feeling, I'm, I'm sure like your spirits were brightened a bit and you felt connected to your body and your athleticism again. But you mentioned that you went straight into a fine arts high school. Did you start to experience your creativity prior to that? Or how did that show up in your life? And how did you manage the fine arts high school? Yeah, so my uncle in Chile was married to a Chilean woman who was an artist. And so she was a painter. 
And so when I was down there, we did ceramics together and painting, and I really enjoyed that. And I'd always sort of had a, a capacity for painting. And then when I came back to the Fine Arts High School, there was a few things. One, there was a lot of weirdos that went to that school, and so it was my first really exciting, and I say that in the most loving sense, I myself felt like I'd found my people. So that was yeah. my first experience of like, oh yeah, not everybody's cooking. Bless the weirdos, man. Yeah. Bless the weirdos. <laughs> and so I felt really excited and really belonged, you know, and, and nobody judged each other and we were allowed to wear whatever we wanted. And so there was just this real liberation and freedom. It's mm-hmm. a fabulous school and it was part of the public school system too. So I was very fortunate to get in. And what we did was our academics in the morning and then our our our, our in the afternoons and evenings. And uh, it was just wonderful. It was a great experience. But it was it was new and, and mostly just full of people who were open minded, which was my first experience of being around a number of people like that all in one space, which was great. And did that cement for you the the idea that you'd become a painter professionally? I don't know if I decided then and there. They have a great preparation program to go to university for painting. And so it cemented the idea that I was going to do my Bachelor of Fine Arts for sure. So I knew it definitely sent me on that track. It helped me to make my first adult decision in that sense of, okay, this is definitely what I want to do. And I I still don't know. I'm pretty determined and I was pretty um, hardworking and entrepreneurial throughout. So I guess there was pieces of that, but I don't remember being, you know, sort of in grade 11 being like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I still didn't totally identify with just the artist as a archetype. Like that wasn't entirely me. So I always felt even in my first few years at Concordia, a little bit uncomfortable with completely identifying with that sort of character. I knew that I had other intelligence and skills and kind of passions and ways that I wanted to light up my life and and that I loved people. And so I think that those things really came to form a well-rounded person, which was sort of taking the entrepreneurial side and pairing it with the art. That's when I started to really feel at home. How did the entrepreneurial part show up or how did you pair it with your art studies? Because as a college student, I'm just wondering what that looked like. Yeah, so I think that in college, I just I worked my butt off and I waitressed full time and I was I was also in school full time. And so in that part of my life, I was just busy working and I did two years at Montreal and two years at NASCAD in Nova Scotia. And so I graduated and right upon graduation, my husband and I, now husband, and I found out we were pregnant. So nothing will sober you up faster than finding out that you're pregnant. Right. At 24, oh, and kick you in the ass. And my last job was waitressing when I was seven and a half months pregnant with my daughter. And so in that sense, the story is very much shaped by the fact that I had to make this my profession, at least for that period of time. You know, if I was going to do anything else, I didn't have any other skills. So that was sort of the beginning of, of what kind of woke me up to wanting to to do this. But And in the same breath, like I think that I would have ended up doing that anyways. That was the, the direction that things were headed. So I got a small studio behind my house at the time. We had a small house and I had we had our daughter and I started painting and my work was featured on Design Sponge with Grace Bonnie in the early, early, early days. It was around 2007, so it was completely different days for the internet. And I sold something like 20 pieces, 22 pieces in three days. Mm. And so they were like $200 at the time or whatever it was. But still, it was this idea. Suddenly, there was a bridge between my studio and the outside world. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this, I can actually make a living, you know. And so that was where the entrepreneurial spirit kind of came in. And at the time, there was the early days, it was like the early days of Seth Godin. And, you know, I was reading everything I could get my hands on. I read this book called Hug Your Customer. And I remember basing my entire business model off of that, and still very much consider myself to follow a lot of what I learned in those early days. So my my business is very much based on customer service. And so I was introducing these new ideas. And books were introducing new ideas to me about what that would look like if I was to continue to make a living off of this. Did you ever get mired in this idea? Like sometimes 
artists have a glamorous idea of the starving artist or mm. suffering for their work or being mm. so avant-garde or so experimental that it's not really uh, – that it's selling out to to think of it as a business. Did you ever get trapped mm. in that sort of mentality? Because it's not exactly healthy for all of our creatives to not make a living. Yeah, so there's sort of two reasons why I didn't – I don't follow that philosophy and I don't – I, in fact, actively speak out against that in that I do believe that we're meant to be full, creative human beings, and that includes having beautiful, amazing mental health and um, happy financial lives that flow and, you know, heat and hot water and and inner peace. (laughs) And so that's sort of largely been my philosophy. Mm -hmm. And in the same breath, the other reason is because I practically could not dip down into that. I can't, I I didn't have time to stay depressed for more than 27 minutes because I had a baby. So I like real life really woke me up. It was like cold water being poured on my head every single day. I had to rise to the occasion. And so I didn't have time to lollygag around and smoke cigarettes and like, you know, have an existential crisis. I was, I was in a crisis of making a living. I had to kind of rise to that occasion, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's basically like you show up and you get to work and that's just what you do. Yeah. As I've heard a lot, you, you say lots and lots of our peers and colleagues that we love and respect in, in our industry. It's like work makes good work. You know, you, it, it, one of the reasons some of the most famous artists we know are, were simply prolific and that, you know, in making a lot of work, you're going to get a few good ones every once in a while. And so I really follow that train of thought. And I also, it's paired by, I think there is a new movement happening where a lot of us do see that because we have autonomy through access to the internet and books and reading and, and our groups of friends and we can fly places. And we have to remember that it's a blessing of our times to not have our heads so far up our ass that we can't sort of look around and think, okay, there's a healthier way to do this. So you spent about 10 years painting for a living. I'd love to hear stories or highlights or pivot points in your career that have informed your current practice. So I think what happens with a lot of artists, there's a few things that happen along the way. One, you can get physically tired. So painting is obviously very physical and it uses the mind, body and the soul and but it also just use, simply uses yeah your arms and your back and your you know there's a physicality to it that kind of wears on you after time and so as I started to notice this and notice that I only sort of had a certain capacity I started to look for various ways like passive forms what, what they would call I'm making air quotes over a podcast but passive forms of income and I put them in air quotes because it actually requires an immense amount of work to set those up. Now, once they're set up, the idea is that they become passive, but something like the collaboration with the rugs, um, about five years ago, I did my first line of rugs with the Burt brothers and I was paired together by, uh, with them through another designer, an interior designer that I had been working with for years. And she said, you guys would be a good match. And I, I came to them and was fortunate enough to be able to do my first line of rugs. And so that was kind of my first experience of two things, one collaboration and the other one is is really setting up what I intend to be as a passive form of income and have since done three lines with them. So yeah, we've got some other examples of that, but that was definitely the first. So then did you, understanding that you had a limited capacity to be prolific with regard to painting because of the physical toll it takes and the and the emotional and, and soul drain. Have you have you found a balance where you've been able to sort of still paint but not have to rely on it entirely? I'm getting there. It took me a lot longer from the point that I made that decision till now. I The last few years, I'm kind of in a place where it's like that sentence of what got you here isn't what's going to take you there. And I'm just redefining what what going there means for the next little while. And part of that is um, not being so tired. And part of that is shifting my mindset from that of like a hustler. I think I'm very proud of what I've hustled up in the last sort of 10 or 11 years. And I think it's going to be more of a shift of, yeah, I'm going to, I mean, painting 
um, also gives energy too. So I, I'm just trying to figure out what that it's really, I don't know if it's so much balance is the right word, but it, for me, it's just logistical scheduling. Like I think I'll paint more like three days a week instead of six days a week. And in those other days, how can I free up my time? So I'm always looking at cash flow and how I can buy myself time, whether that's for leisure, pleasure, or but more for the capacity to kind of work on the business rather than in the business, which is a, just a place, a new place that I'm at. Do you find the same kind of satisfaction when you design, let's say, a line of rugs? Does the artist in you feel fed? I feel more surprised by it. Like every time I look at it, I feel proud. I, I, it's very much ex- an extension of it's exactly as I intended it to be. So that's very rare. Sometimes I think with a collaboration, it comes out and the person is dissatisfied. So I've had mm-hmm. the great, great fortune of working with great people. The Burrits are awesome, but more so the weavers that we work with are excellent at what they do. So the thing that comes out is just stunning to me. It's like I've never seen something so beautiful, whether it was somebody else's rug or mine. It's just the sheer quality of the work is impressive. And then the scale is much larger than I've ever been able to do. And so it's fascinating to me and it's still interesting and it gets me excited. And there's obviously this sense, the, the literal materials, it didn't come from my hand, but it did somewhere come from my mind and my soul. So yeah, there's, there's a satisfaction there for sure. And just the joy and the pleasure of getting to collaborate is really fun because I'm an extrovert. And so getting to kind of work with the Burrits and Ainsley and she, she's the one who actually, her and I work side by side together on the, the designs and it's just a great pleasure. It's fun. Can you talk a little bit about the state of your current practice? I know you have a new series that you're working on, and I think you were mentioning that you also experimented with some sculpture. I'd love to hear more about where your art practice is going now. Yeah, so I just spent the last four years in Montreal, and I just moved back in September to Vancouver, to my hometown of Vancouver. And so my time in in Montreal... I I mentioned that because I had this huge studio. I still have it. It's about 1,200 square feet. And I had between one and three or four people working for me at at one time. And so we were able to um, actualize some more fun projects that we maybe wouldn't have been able to do with A, a smaller space, or B, like a smaller staff. So in those four years, I was able to work on two more rug lines with the birds, but also, yeah, do the wall sculpture and release a line of mirrors as well. So the wall sculpture and the mirrors actually both kind of came from the same place in that when I, I travel around to a lot of shows, like as you, I know you do, Jamie, and, and what I was seeing or not, a lot of what I do is birthed from the, what I don't see on the market. So when I go and see lines of mirrors, for example, a lot of times they have really strong geometric shapes or same thing with any application for bronze. Oftentimes it's applied in like, we think of it as a heavier material or having like right angles, etc. So I was trying to kind of, I'm always trying to find if I'm working with a new material, I'm looking at different ways that I can manipulate that material. So the bronze, in order for it to have more feminine or organic shapes. So for example, with the bronze sculpture, I actually did a bronze line drawing. So there's these nude drawings that I've been making for over 10 years that are, are quite popular that people like They're but they've simply always been chalk on paper. And so what I did was I worked with a ceramicist and her and I laid out a drawing on a board and then we had it cast at a foundry in northern Quebec. So I was working with artisans and artists who were excellent at their particular materials or craft. And then we were able to actualize this bronze sculpture, which is actually sort of more like a bronze nude drawing, essentially, which I had never really seen before. So that, that's what interests me is making something that's never really seen before. That's awesome. So you're doing a lot of stuff between the sculptures, mirrors, rugs, paintings, prints, drawings. Can you kind of break down what goes on in your brain? What's your creative process like? Where do you start and how does it flow? So I think I've been doing this for almost 12 years. And I would say the first 10 years, there was a lot. My brain was always very full. There was a lot of chatter. There's a lot of panic, a lot of urgency, and a lot of financial stress. And so that voice was always talking to me. And so I suffered from that, from, you know, the financial stress alone and raising two young children was very, very stressful. I operated out of a very different place than I 
am now. And I think in the last couple of years, especially, I don't know if I told you, but I quit drinking maybe two and a half years ago. And so I'm in a different place in terms of my mind. I start with scheduling my time. So I look at my week and I, I have a studio manager named Jeremy. He's wonderful. And so he works at an office. And so him and I will set up our time for the week and prioritize what needs to happen. We have deadlines and things are still stressful, but we're looking at our time more calmly and from a place of playing offense rather than defense, you know, just letting things flow a bit more and being a little bit less rigid about outcomes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. 
This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called mouse parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole and things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. One of the things I would really like to know from you is where do the ideas come from for the forms that you make? Because I, I know you do nudes and then you do landscapes, some women, portraits, and you've moved into vessels. I'd love to just get a peek inside where those things come from. Well, all three come from very different places. So I studied the nude when I was in school. I was obsessed. I studied it uh, very strictly for about 10 years. And I mean, like, instead of going to the bar, instead of like, it was a hobby to me, I would go to figure drawing classes. And so I have a fairly decent capacity for high realism. And I also have a really strong understanding of anatomy, which I believe is very important. If you're going to paint the figure, the figurative work has existed for a long time and it's definitely more narrative. So it, a body of work, say um, one of the exhibitions I had here in Vancouver is called a break in pace and it was 13 pieces. They were very much autobiographical. So they were, I was talking about experiences that I had had challenges with staying in my marriage or the difficulties and hardships of motherhood uh, the difficulty of carrying burdens, um, vulnerability versus openness, you know, so they were all about what I was experiencing and people really connected to those. There was a beautiful piece of text in the exhibition. So that body of work, for example, would be made at a time where in the, in the same period of time, let's say six over six months or whatever it was in the studio, I have a commercial practice going on as well, for lack of a better term. So something like the landscapes, for example, are definitely made as color field paintings. They're meant to be calm. Clients are able to identify them as a space that they can kind of just relax into or be energized by. And I take them very seriously and I don't favor one over the other, but they have definitely provided me with an income and a, a life you know, that lets me be more experimental in the studio. So to be quite frank, for example, if I don't sell three landscapes in a certain month or something, then I can't afford to experiment with a bronze sculpture. So these things always have to work in harmony. And so if I don't sell a certain amount, I'm, I'm not afforded the capacity to experiment. And that's why when people talk about a patron, like I very much follow that kind of thought or belief that and my my clients very much understand that they're connected to their purchasing work and using you know part of their money that I receive I very much use to progress my career and my creativity and they afford me time in the studio if that makes sense thank you for explaining that and I'm really interested I don't know why this fascinates me so much maybe because it's not my skill set but you said you sit down with Jeremy or you sort of schedule your time at the beginning yeah. of the week. So do you give yourself time to paint, to brainstorm, to come up with creative ideas? And then do you stick to that schedule? And are you able to just summon your creativity according to your calendar? <laughs> I think that part of the, it, the answer is yes and no, right? More so than most. Sure. Mm -hmm. I've never struggled with, like people might say they struggle with uh, getting into the studio and getting work done. That has never been, I have other shortcomings and challenges and that has never been one of them. So we just all have different strengths and, and different ways that we operate. But I have an obedience to that practice because I have a, I have a strong spiritual reverence for my, what I get to do. When I come from that place, I go into the studio, I might be grumbly and, and not feel very well and not have eaten properly or slept the night before, but, and I kind of like, oh my gosh, I don't love my job every day. I'm a human, but fundamentally, I feel thankful for what I get to do. And I also feel like I am not owed anything. So I have to 
work for that. And I'm very, very thankful to my clients. And then just logistically, just like an Amazon package has to get sent on a Thursday or something has to be delivered by a Friday at 2 p.m. I have to have completed certain things in order to get paid. And so I get a 50% deposit from my clients and then 50% when I complete the project. So sometimes they're like, complete it whenever you want. And Jeremy and I are like, no, that's going to be completed <laughs> on the next week because we have to get the other 50%. And it's it's unromantic, but it's quite simply the way that we operate and have to, you know, in order to keep things going. I disagree. I think it's totally <laughs> romantic. I like the symphony of all of this coming together in this beautiful swirl of collaboration yeah. and playing to each other's strengths and, yeah. you know, budgeting and, and scheduling and still being creative. Like that <laughs> is the symphony that we're all trying to do. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you said that. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's good. Well, I think it's important to note that like you schedule in creative time and that's super important i mean a lot of people just assume you're sitting around waiting for ideas to just pop into your head and a lot of the times it's really just i mean like we talked about earlier just showing up and doing the work yeah and i think like a logical example so that people can kind of understand is like maybe i'll schedule in i have to get a black and white painting done on a, a landscape done on a thursday and i'll schedule in my creativity for the friday and then i'll just get into I can't get into the landscape on the Thursday so I'll just switch those two days but I do by Friday by 5 p.m. I I can't really come to my clients or to Jeremy and say I haven't finished what I set out to do for the week so so like anyone it's sort of like a by Friday at 5 p.m. type of thing so in that sense there's a rigidity but there's a fluidity that I think that when you can can hit that sweet spot then you can be in flow and that's good. I want to ask you a little bit about being an artist who's also a boss. I'm an artist, but I don't tell anybody what to do. I don't have anybody helping me or anything like that. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I don't understand what that's like. Does it translate into the same way it does with anybody who's running a business? Is it the same kind of situation? And how do you lead as an artist? I think that I'm leading as a, as a small business woman. So I'm leading the challenge is whether I was an artist or I was an architect or I was a backpack designer, if I just had a small team, which right now, as I just moved into Vancouver, I just have Jeremy. So I'm leading um, from that place and it's using a certain type of skill sets that I, I think I have na natural leadership capacities that probably come from being a parent and uh, being a partner. And I, I love leading and I love, I have no problem sort of making clear ways that I see that we should sort of have certain outcomes. So I'm, I'm comfortable in that role. I don't really know where I learned it, but maybe being the captain of certain sports teams and then sort of being on student council and progressively through my life, I was always taking on leadership roles and that was always kind of fun and exciting to me. So I definitely have shortcomings as a leader and I would love to spend it's so confusing because I'd love to spend more time being a better leader and in the same breath I'd love to just spend more time in the studio so that's hard it just kind of comes yeah. down to hours and capacity yeah that leads me to ask you a question about expansion I mean if your business were to expand in in some way like where would you end up being pulled in what direction would you go and how would you see your studio expanding I'm not sure. I think it did expand the last four years over in Montreal. Like it, mm -hmm. it quite literally was was big and beautiful and had high ceilings and a kitchen. And we enjoyed our time together as a team. And at our best, we were we were great and efficient and, and fun. And it was dynamic. We had lots of there was lots of ideas flowing through the studio and lots of wonderful sexy lady rap music and wonderful <laughs> food and great values. And I really, really, really enjoyed that time. And in the same breath, coming down, paring things down now and just being with Jeremy and I actually have my office separate from my studio now. And so separating those two things and kind of taking a step back and not having so much overhead with staff and not so much overhead with studio rent, it's nice. And so now <laughs> I'm not sure what the future holds, but it's, there's something really, really nice about just running a leaner operation. I like agility and freedom, and I, those are values that I have. So with a bigger team, you, you're always kind of like 
you have to make a lot of work in order to make payroll and it's just a lot more responsibility and stress. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what the future holds. Why did you make the switch from Montreal to Vancouver? Why did you move? We were only going to go to Montreal for four or for one year, and we ended up there for four. So, by the time four years rolled around, it was just time for us to come back. And a lot of my clients are here, and I was traveling here every six to eight weeks to come and see clients here in Vancouver. And I had access to a small studio here as well, so I was, you know, coming back and painting. And I was just finding that a lot more people know who I am here in Vancouver, and it just came to a point where I had to kind of go where the going was good, and I wanted to get our son studying in English rather than French. The French system started to get really difficult for him. And I wanted to get us back home and closer to family with more support. You mentioned, and I don't want to gloss over it, but you mentioned that two and a half years ago, you quit drinking or you've been sober for two and a half years. I don't. Yeah. I don't know if you're willing to. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I didn't know if drinking was your drug of choice, so I didn't want to make any assumptions, but, um, are you willing to talk to us about that journey? Because oh my gosh, I, think, I love, love it, love it. I would oh, love please, that anymore. I yeah. don't think people talk about it enough. And, you know, with all reverence, a lot of people go through this journey alone or anonymously, and that's oh. important too. But anything you're willing to share, we would love to hear about this. Yeah, so um, I love talking about sobriety. It's the best thing uh, besides finding God at 12 years old and loving my spiritual life. I, I love, love, love being sober. And I never imagined that I would be able to be sober. I never imagined that I was just drinking almost every night. And I never could imagine that this would be my reality. So I'm just so thankful and so excited. And my main message to people is that there is life on the other side of drinking and that it's, there's this pervasive culture of drinking um, and it feels like the cultural norm. And so there's this, for me, it was very difficult to put up my hand and say, I have a problem because binge drinking and drinking just in general and alcohol is everywhere. And so um, I felt a lot of shame around how much I was drinking and Uh, had a lot of trouble kind of coming out about it and was really lucky because I had a friend who got sober by finding hip sobriety. I don't know if you ladies have heard of hip sobriety, but I read hip sobriety straight through and... Is it a book? It's a website. Oh, okay. Yeah. And she has a fabulous book list and I've also devoured lots of those books as well. So reading that was really the start of really realizing her first, the first line of her website says, you don't have to hit rock bottom in order to quit drinking. And so I was kind of terrified to go into AA because I didn't really know what that would be like. And I kind of had it in my mind that that was for people who had a really serious problem who were, you know, sort of down and out. And, and I didn't want to hit rock bottom, but I didn't know how to kind of get myself out of my situation. So yeah, I found his hip sobriety and fell in love with the language. It's really contemporary language. And she actually doesn't identify as an alcoholic. She identifies as someone who had a drinking problem and a habit, and um, but in the same breath takes it really seriously. And I healed myself through yoga and breathing, and and now have since then have actually gone to AA a little bit in, in the last little while, and have started to learn a lot more through AA. So I'm not anti-AA, but I just was able to find hip sobriety and use that as a starting place to heal. And when you say heal, can you talk to us about like what it was that you felt need to be healed? The way I see it is that there's getting sober, right? There's being in a right mind and able to just be dry and have a clear mind, not be sort of passing out every second or third night or not be day drinking or whatever way in which alcohol is affecting you. There's the getting sober part. So the body is clear of alcohol. And then there's different levels of work that have to be done if someone is to want to truly heal, in my opinion. And so there's healing on the surface, which is just kind of coming to your family and saying, hey, we're, I'm going to be sober now. And, you know, just finding new ways to operate and different kinds of fuzzy drinks that you like to drink and, and just finding different activities that you like to do and some new friends and, and all of those sort of, I don't want to call them surface, but sort of first layer of healing. Mm -hmm. And then there's the deeper healing that has to happen. For me, it was like, I wanted to ask that question, or at some point, you kind of have to ask that question, like, 
what was I escaping or what was I, why was I wanting to drink more than other people? And, and where was that coming from? And, and with the help of, you know, therapy and various books and other sober friends, I've been able to kind of dig into what was that? And why was I wanting to essentially escape my life after six or 7 PM and things got really dark and where was I going and why was I doing that? You know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if you can talk about how would you describe the difference? Obviously, you know, logistically and practically, you're alcohol free, you're doing different things, you're socializing in different ways. But like, how is your life different? Or your outlook different now than before? I think that other people would describe would say that I am, I've always been an outgoing, present, like fun person to be around. But I am completely present now. So if we're talking and we're in each other's presence, I'm completely focused on you and I want to be in the moment. And I think the biggest change for me, it sounds very simple, but I accept my life now. Now I can see my reality very clearly. And I think before I was always kind of modifying reality. And I think that's another addiction that our culture has. It's like, if it was only just a little bit warmer. I went on vacation with my husband, but it wasn't quite, you know, we didn't quite have enough fun. And I always kind of want to, people often want to modify their life. And when you just are able to sit in your body and watch your thoughts and feelings go by and you carry your peace around with you, like that is the most liberating feeling. And I think that once I moved the obstacle of alcohol out of the way, alcohol was just a way for me to escape my reality. And so now I'm in real life and I have to pay my taxes and do all the nitty gritty and have sober sex and, and do all of these really logical, often kind of boring and kind of straightforward things. But the pleasure of that is that I am completely with you when I'm with you. And so that's like such a freeing gift. Hmm. So you're saying it's better? Oh my gosh, it's so much better. <laughs> Even paying taxes? I totally want a glass of wine when I have to pay taxes. <laughs> I listen, I love I've loved my time enjoying alcohol and I I don't have any sort of, you know, negative feelings about it. Really, I needed it to get through. I look back now and I have a compassionate sense of why that was happening, but I also, you know, I also feel like we're we're all feminists and we're in this really crazy weird time and I really really think that life needs us to be awake and so whatever that means for all of us it's just really important that we are present and awake right now because if we're tired and unhealthy and hungover and whatever all of those things, if all of those layers are on us, then we can't like rise to the occasion right now. And we're in a really, really like a, a really important time where as a feminist, I feel it's really important for us to be with it. I was going to say cheers to that, but yeah. I mean, it's... <laughs> I just still drink um, beverages that are liquid. So I am able to okay. cheers and uh, okay. very cool. <laughs> well, I've, I love what you've had to say about this. And I also love the message that you don't have to hit rock bottom to make just like to sort of turn the ship around and make different choices for yourself. And you obviously light up when you talk about it, indicating that it is better on the other side. (laughs) It must be because listen to you and being fully present sounds terrifying, but also... Is it? Is it really not that terrifying? No, it's awful. It's awful. Um, So I don't know. Once you, it's like anything. Once you kind of do it, I'm on the other side, you know. And so it's like not to say that I'm not like above, you know. I don't know. I'm not a psychic. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But I do know that, uh, like anything, once you jump in the water, you can have a lot of fun and. Once you make that decision, there's a liberation there in just making the decision. You know, just like being a vegetarian or something. Once you decide, it's kind of like, okay, now I don't have to. I didn't like what well, that's what I, one of the things I didn't like about alcohol was like constantly not deciding, like not knowing I, I want to drink this much, I can't drink that much, beating myself up for that. And now that I've just decided once, now I'm just over it, you know? Yeah. And it must be nice too to wake up every day and not have to 
wonder if you have shame. Yeah. Yeah. If I say anything that I didn't mean or whatever I was, I'm very, I mean, first of all, it rarely happens. And then I'm able to just apologize in the moment and move forward. So that's a really good feeling. So you also mentioned something that we have to talk about, which is that you found God at 12. (laughs) And it sounds like it was a major thing. So can you tell us that story? Yeah, well, being raised in a sort of, I want to say a liberal Christian uh, household, you know, I definitely was brought to church and I loved going. I loved the singing. I loved the clapping. I loved the worshiping. I loved the idea that I could talk to God and that God could be my companion and that we could have this conversation. So I really have been very fortunate enough to carry that through my adult life. And, and I I have a wonderful yoga practice and I journal every morning and I sing and I pray and I go jogging and I, I talk with my grandmother who's passed away. And so I have all this, this joy around this pleasure around this access to this relationship with God, essentially, which is, I'm just been such a wonderful part of my life. Was there something that happened at 12 years old? Or is that just when it clicked for you that this sort of practice that you were being fed as a child was something that you could also really internalize and make your own? Yeah, exactly that. I I don't think I could say it any better. There was, you know, obviously, preteen crying and real feeling of emotion and mm-hmm. whether, you know, I identified that as God and, but it, that invitation in that coming in that I could have my own relationship with God, that was so new to me. And yeah, exactly. It was, it was exactly that. It was great. I think if someone had told me at that age that I could create my own spirituality and my own like religious existence inside of me, that would have like fucking flipped my brain in half because I went to Catholic school and it was always like this is what you have to do and this is the book and if you don't go by the book you're in trouble and you're going to hell and there were all these rules and I feel like as I've gotten older and explored various religions and various types of spirituality it's like it opens you up in so many ways and you realize that you can kind of create whatever you want and whatever you need it to be for you. And I feel like that's so wonderful that you were able to experience that at such a young age. Yeah, I'm very, very lucky. And again, I think it comes back to my parents. Like I mentioned, you know, they just kept saying, and even my grandmother, like I was very close to my grandma and she was a, she was a Christian, capital C, for sure. There was, you know, no, it was Jesus. But it was, it was also the, the Jesus that we got to know was the Jesus who was nomadic and poor and came to earth to love people and let prostitutes wash his feet with their hair like that Jesus not a Jesus who was built up in a big in in rules and dogma he Mm -hmm. came to abolish the law and he came to love so that was who we were introduced to so it was great I was like I can get on board with that yeah paired with the camping I was like Jesus was essentially like a hippie. He's like the <laughs> uncle that you went camping with. who was like teaching you how to canoe and like showing you the sunset. It was like everything was connected and like there's a great liberation in that. So it was fun. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Unfortunate. You said something that my brain got trapped on, which was what got you here is not what's going to mm-hmm. take you there. Yeah. That sounds like a philosophical understanding of like, you you can't necessarily stay in the same pattern and expect yeah. to really. Okay. Help, yeah. Help, yeah. So I think it was just, you know, I, I, I identify with and like, am proud of the fact that I was a hustler. So like, if you said your aunt wanted a painting, I would like hustle over, you know, make sure that I emailed her and followed up and, but behind that is this like urgency in the sense of like delivering great customer service and a beautiful, beautiful product that I stand by and I wouldn't go back. I just need to shift. That's like one human doing all these like a hundred million things. And I think I just mm-hmm. need to make a bit of a shift for larger, like a mm, strategy rather than hustle, you know? I do. I do know. And I also think that with this piece that you have that you carry around with you now, you can't be that high strung or that urgent all the time. It's exhausting, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to learn in terms of like leadership. I want to also impart that 
onto other people, like teach people how to do it. So there's definitely a shift happening there too, where I want to step into learning how to listen to other people and just ensure that I've run a group for female entrepreneurs since uh, we co-founded it in 2007. There's a capacity there to really influence other women who I think are suffering at the hands of being so exhausted and working so crazy hard. So I think that that shift has happened in me and is happening. And I just want to learn how to figure out how to help other people too. So that's what's changing for sure. I mean, that's really wonderful. I do feel that way as well, that there's just a lot of people taking on so much. And I, I do feel like social media and the internet also, when you when you run a business, a lot of times, you know, you spend a lot of times hustling on the internet, right? And that can be exhausting too. You know, as I've gotten older, I also feel like I don't have the same level of energy for the hustle that I used to have (laughs) like 10 years ago. So yeah, I do feel a shift as well. And that strategy is incredibly important. But also, I agree, support from fellow entrepreneurs is going to be really important. Yeah, definitely. For sure. So what's next for you? What's coming up? Where do you go from here? Well, I think I just just sort of settled the ship here in the sense that the move from Montreal took a lot more out of me than I had anticipated. And I think I definitely downplayed that. And I think as, as women and, and as entrepreneurs and parents, we do that, right? We have to be like, okay, it's just this big. So I can kind of manage it and kind of make it this small. And then when you sort of look at what you just did, you're like, holy shit, that was a really big move. So I'm just kind of coming down from that and got Jeremy set up and we're enjoying our time together and our, the practice and I think that it's just more of the same you know one of the reasons I came home was to be in the same city as Burritts and get to really work on some beautiful rug photography and I want the rugs to really be there's three collections and they're gorgeous but we need better photography of them so just kind of working Jamie with the pieces that we already have but really going a little deeper with each piece um, mm-hmm. with the sculpture and stuff we have it it's gorgeous but we need to take photos of it and kind of a new website and just freshen things up and, and really try to figure out to some beautiful copy because my website right now doesn't have any words on it. And so, and I think I have a lot of capacity for storytelling. So we're going to try to work on that in the spring and, and a new exhibition. I have a small exhibition coming out next week in Vancouver of the vessels, which I'm really excited about. It's just a window display at a place called the aviary. And so that'll be up for next week. And yeah, I'm just excited to have it up. And how old are your kids now? They are 10 and 12. Whoa. So my daughter, like our daughter, for example, is 5'9", and she's like our size and our, you know, same size as lots of my friends. And so it's trippy because she's no longer, you know, she's still 12 and we have to, you know, take care of her and treat her as such sometimes. But she's really, really, really independent. And so both of them are growing up. And I'm definitely, that, and that's why I have a little bit more time to kind of think and breathe. And, you know, they're a bit older, so you have more time and space. Well, do you have a new project that you'd want to share with our listeners or something we can look forward to in the pipeline? I think that I'm going to be making some more bronze sculptures. And so everybody can kind of watch out for those. And otherwise, I'm going to keep digging into the vessel paintings. I think there's a lot more there for me to do. And so I look forward to making some more of those. Yeah, they're really beautiful. Thank you. So can you... Shout out your website, social media handles and everything so our listeners can find you. Yeah, for sure. So it's zoepollock.com, Z-O-E-P-A-W-L-A-K. And my Instagram is Z-O-E-P-A-W-L-A-K. So my full name at Zoe Pollock and at zoepollock.com. Yay. Yay. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate it pleasure really thanks for listening to see images of zoe's work and read the show notes click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter subscribe to clever on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and please if you could give us a rating or a review it really helps us out Also, we love when you connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast. Let's continue the conversation there. Clever is created, produced, and hosted by us, Amy Devers and Jamie Derringer, also known as 2VDE Media. 
with editing by Jenny Josephson and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.